Good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting, uh, let me also extend a welcome to you that we're glad you're with us this morning. Uh, we are in a summer series on looking at the life of Abraham. And so this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. You'll find that if you're using one of your pew Bibles on page 10 of that Bible. Uh, and the title of our summer series is Living in Light of God's Promises, as we look at the life of Abraham as one that God called to himself and somebody who had to live day by day in faith that God would really come through for him and his promises that he made to him. And we're going to be looking at uh, this morning at some ways in which Abraham very much deeply struggled with that calling by God. Let's pray together and then we'll turn uh, to Genesis chapter 15. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning uh, as people ourselves who doubt, as we're going to see that Abraham wrestles with doubts of his own. Help us to come this morning, Father, with a glimmer of hope that we can come to you, the one who can settle our doubts, who can meet us in them, who is not daunted by them, who's not scared away by them. So, Father, help us to come honestly before you, and would you speak to us by the power of your Spirit from your Word as we open it now. We ask this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 15, we'll be reading the whole chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram, Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look towards heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
as I said, this summer we're looking at the life of Abraham. And uh, prior to this, though, over the course of the spring, we did a series on the first half of the book of Mark, and we're going to be picking that up again in a few months. And we ended that series right at chapter or verse 1 of chapter 9. Uh, later in chapter 9 of Mark, though, there's this, this great and memorable story, one that I'm often thankful uh, is in the pages of Scripture. There's a man who comes to Jesus with a child who is possessed by a demon, and and this child is afflicted in such a way this demon casts him into the fire, is always trying to hurt him, his life is in danger. And this man comes desperate to Jesus and says, you know, if you can, Lord, would you heal him? Jesus looks at him and says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the man gives this great and honest response. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You ever felt like that? You know, Lord, I believe, I, I trust you, but I struggle to trust you. Uh, that man was, was giving a picture of, of, I think, what's going on here in our passage of this morning with Abraham, someone who is also being called to have faith, and someone also, at, at some level, who is wrestling with doubt as well. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we all struggle with doubt. We all wrestle with unbelief in a lot of ways. We all are people who are in need of reassurance. We're going to see reassurance from God, but reassurance from the people around us too. I mean, how many ways and times do you see yourself asking, for instance, just for reassurance of the love of the people around you, even in your own family? You know, maybe you've asked this question of your spouse, or maybe you didn't actually ask it. You sort of creatively turned the conversation to elicit the response that you wanted, but you were basically asking this, honey, do you still love me <laughs> after all these years or after what I just did or after what I just forgot to do? Do you still love me? You know, with your children, your children need to, my children need to hear often that we love them. And our kids come up and will say, Daddy, I love you, sometimes to encourage me and sometimes so they will hear in response, Son, I love you too. We're asking this question inwardly or outwardly all the time with the people around us, our friends, our parents, our spouses. And that's a question in one sense that Abram is coming with this morning because God, Abram is in relationship with God. He has already staked everything on following God. He's been called out of a foreign country. He's listened to God's voice. He's come to Canaan as God's called him to, but he still is someone in need of God's re reassurance that God's promises really are going to stick, that God is really going to be faithful to him, that in spite of appearances of his situation, that God really does love him. And he really will speak that to him. You see, what does Abram need in this passage? He needs uh, the assurance and encouragement of God as he struggles to take in God's promises and to be transformed by them. Abraham needs assurance, a guarantee of God's grace that can still his fears, that can quiet his doubts, that can give him the courage that he needs to continue to follow God in all that God calls him too. And it's the kind of it's the kind of assurance of God's promises. It's the kind of speaking of his peace that we need in our lives as well. Here's the point we're going to see this morning. Part of the ordinary normal Christian life is a wrestling with doubt. And as we've titled the sermon series this summer, Living in Light of God's Promises, part of living in light of God's promises is walking through those seasons and days and times when we really do doubt that maybe God's promises are true or they still hold for us. And this part of the Abraham story then has something to show us, I think, about faithful doubting. That's what's going on here in Genesis 15. So we're going to look at these things about doubt. The reality of our doubt. 
God's answer to our doubt. And then we're going to say a few things about what we can do with our doubt in, in, in light of God's response. Okay, so first, the reality of our doubt. Um, God has already, and we've seen this a few weeks ago, God's already promised Abram three things. He said to Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the dust on the earth. I'm going to give you descendants. Abram, I'm going to give you this land of Canaan. And Abram, you and your family are going to be a blessing to all the families of the world. God's already given him those three promises. He's received them from God, yet we see him here again in this place of wondering and struggle and doubt. I mean, look at the ways his doubts express. We see it in verses 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 8. The chapter opens up and God comes to him and says, don't be afraid, Abram. Okay, the chapter that we didn't look at, the one preceding this in 14, an international conglomeration of armies and kings have come in and defeated the local kings. They uh, ran away with all the goods. They stole Lot, Abram's nephew, and all of his uh, family and uh, took them away as slaves. And Abram and his small band of fighting men pursued them, defeated them, won a great victory and brought everybody home in the face of this sort of, sort of international army. And so he's coming off chapter 14 in this moment of great military success and God comes to him and says, do not fear. Okay, why? Because he's now got very powerful enemies, perhaps. Because he's just won this great victory, but is he going to be able to maintain it? Have you ever noticed that your fears and my fears are an expression of doubt? Okay, maybe things have been good, but is God going to come through next? When we're afraid, we're saying, is God going to meet me in the challenges of life that are coming right now? Verse 1 opens with Abram in success, fearing and doubting and wondering, God, are you still there? Verses 2 and 3, he goes on and says, okay, you're promising to be with me and to be my shield and be my reward. But look, you've promised me descendants. And look, I don't even have one child. And so this guy in my household is going to be the one to inherit everything I've got. Can't you do something more for me than this? And as God addresses his, this promise of, for descendants for him, verse 8, he comes back and says, well, that's, that's all well and good, but what about the land? Are you going to provide for me there as well? You see, Abram again and again, even here in this passage, he's coming to God with his doubts. Even as God is speaking to him, he is somebody who doubts and needs assurance. But here's what I want to point, about, point out about Abram and his doubts. Abram doubts as someone who knows God from the inside. And what do I mean by that? As we've said, Abram is somebody who is already in relationship with God. He has already staked everything he has on God and his promises. When God came to him in a foreign land in Ur of Chaldea, he came to him and said, leave all of this, leave your family, leave your pagan foreign gods and come to the land of Canaan where I am taking you. And he does it. Leaves everything behind. He's seen God come and deliver him from his past. He's seen God come and deliver him already in these first few chapters of his story from famine in the land of Canaan, from death in Egypt, from a family implosion with Lot, from foreign invaders here in chapter 14 right before this. So when Abram comes and he doubts, he comes as someone who knows God and who knows his promises. Now, we all know, and maybe you sit here as somebody who would self-consciously say, you know, I, I, I doubt God from the outside. I'm, I look at the claims of Christianity and, and what the Bible says about our need for God, for forgiveness from sins, from the provision of that in Jesus. 
and I just don't buy it. You know, you're looking at it from the outside saying, I doubt the truth of this. But what Abraham's doing, he's doubting from the inside. He's saying, I've tasted this, I know this, but is God still going to be good for me? Is he still going to show up and care for me? See, Abram in his doubts, he is not turning away from God. You see what he's doing with his, with his doubts? He's turning towards God. He's not taking them and running away. He's coming to the only source of the answers to his doubts that really exists, God himself. He's coming to God and saying, what are you going to do about this? You've made these great promises to me. How can I know? Are you really going to show up? But he does it face to face with God as he comes with that aspect of faith that says, even in the midst of my struggles, I know where to go. I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to turn to God. I'm not going to let my doubts drive me away. They're going to drive me deeper that I might know you better, God. God, what are you doing? We see him doubting as one who doubts from the inside. The same kind of doubts that we read in the book of Psalms. If, you, if you've read through any number of the Psalms, you, you'll notice that so many of them express thoughts like this. Where are you, Lord? And why are you hiding yourself? And why do the wicked prosper? And why is everything in my life falling apart? God, where are you? And again and again in, the, in Psalms, we hear voiced the very struggles of our own hearts. God, where are you in the struggles of my life? I'm not going to go looking somewhere else. I know that everything else leads to dead ends. You have got, you are all I've got. Now, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to be faithful? Or are you going to come through for me? Abram comes with these doubts. Oftentimes our doubts come in those moments of great struggle where life is falling apart, where we're having physical health struggles, where things are maybe falling apart relationally around us. But again, Abram comes in the midst of everything going well. He's just won this incredible battle, yet in the midst of his great success, he knows that somebody can come and just blow on that and it's gone if God does not continue to show up for him. Maybe you've known what it's like to have those kind of doubts in the moments that feel like success as well. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote somewhere about the feeling that he had often in the after successfully having maybe a debate with somebody about the truth of Christianity or, or writing something very well. He said oftentimes after those moments of success, he would come home and that's when he doubted the most. That's when he was laid low the most on the very uh, cusp of success. When do you struggle with doubt? Maybe you uh, have been following God for a long time. Maybe just recently. Maybe you're sitting here and you're just thinking about it. Is God possibly real? Is He possibly faithful? Could He possibly meet me in the midst of my life? And at whatever point in there, you, you find those days where you think, did, did I make all this up? You ever had those? I do. And you wake up and think, I believe that somebody who lived 2,000 years ago in another culture, uh, grew up as a carpenter, turned out to be the Son of God, was crucified for my sins, raised from the dead, and that is where my salvation hinges. Do you ever have those days where you think, really? 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 That we come with our doubts to this God. We come to uh, God with our own struggles with doubt. Um, those days when you wake up in the midst of those hard situations of your life and you think, has God abandoned me? Or maybe those days when you find yourselves in the middle of the hard consequences of life that have come through your own actions, through your own failures, through your own sin, and you think, have I finally messed things up beyond repair? Has God given up on me? Has His promise of salvation that comes through the cross finally been overridden by the power of my sin? We come with our own doubts. So what does God think of them? 
those doubts? What's his attitude to Abram's doubts and to ours? We'll notice two things about what we see in chapter 15. First, do you notice that God doesn't get angry? You know, when uh, God doesn't come to Abram and say, look, I've already told you that I'm going to give you these things and that I love you. Okay, if that ever changes, I'll let you know, right? He doesn't. What does he say? He says, Abram, I can take your doubts. Let me speak assurance to you again. He doesn't get angry at him. God's not afraid of Abram's doubts. And if you read Abram's story, and if you read through the whole Bible, you will find that God is not afraid or ashamed to keep company with people who doubt him. It comes up time and again as he gently leans in towards his people who struggle to believe. And I think maybe just one application for us is if God is going to be that kind of God, that he can handle our doubts, that he can deal with them graciously, that he can walk side by side with us, then surely his church is called to be the same kind of group. It's supposed to be a family, a community of people who are also very gentle with each other with our doubts with our struggles. Is this church, is it going to be a place where we are free to share where we struggle and where we doubt, knowing that God is good, God's people are good, and that we can walk together in that? Or are we going to have to pretend that nothing ever dents our armor, that nothing ever makes us question, that we never have days like our pastor does where he wakes up and says, is all this really real? Are we going to be able to walk with doubt as we faithfully point each other towards God? God's not afraid of our doubt. He doesn't get angry. You know, I think about it with my own children when they come to me with their questions. Uh, recently, <laughs> you have a six-year-old child who came to me and started asking me questions like this the other night. Daddy, how do we know that the Bible's true? I mean, other religions have their books and they say different things. How do we know that ours is true and theirs isn't? How do we know that what we believe is right and that other, what other people believe is wrong? I mean, I have trouble believing that's really the case. And I'm thinking, this isn't supposed to hit until high school. <laughs> I'm supposed to have 10 more years before this, and it's coming out of the mouth of a six-year-old. And what do I do? Crush her in her doubts or say this. Those are good questions. Let's talk about them. And we're going to be a community that does that as well. God, like a good father, doesn't get angry with our doubts. He meets us in them. But the second thing, not only does he not get angry, God doesn't dismiss Abram's doubts either. He doesn't pat Abram on the back and say, you know, Abram, part of being a sophisticated, well-educated person in the ancient Middle East is that you are somebody who can really wrestle with, with uh, doubt because there is no real certainty in life, Abraham, and the better that you and the sooner that you embrace that, the better off you'll be. He doesn't say that to Abram. What does he say? I'm not going to turn you away, but I'm not going to leave you there either, Abram. I'm going to meet you in your doubts. I'm going to speak to you about them. And we are going to go somewhere with this. God doesn't get angry and doesn't dismiss it. What does He do? He answers. And that's the other point here this morning, that God not only um, shows us here in Scripture that doubts are a part of following Him that do come into our lives, but God has an answer to our doubts. What's the answer that He gives to Abram? I think He answers his doubt in, in several ways. He shows Abram some things. Here's what He shows him. He shows Abram who, God shows him who he is for us. God show, answers his doubt in what he says to us and what he does for us. Okay, first, God shows Abram his, the answer to his doubt in what he is for us. Look in verse 1. What does God say that he is for Abram? He comes to Abram in the midst of his uh, recent military success and uses a military term. He says, Abram, I am your shield. He says, I am your shield. Abram, you're fearing reprisals. You're fearing for your life. You're fearing for what may happen next. I am your shield. Who needs a shield? 
People who are exposed to attack and to struggle and to difficulty. People who need protection because they can't protect themselves. People who know that uh, the world is too big for them, that they cannot micromanage and control every aspect of their lives. And at the end of the day, they're dependent on someone else to care for them. They need a shield. They need their God. It's an image that's used repeatedly in the Old Testament. Let me just read a few from you for, for, the, for you from the Psalms. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This God, His way is perfect. His wor- the word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield to all those who take refuge in Him. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts. I am helped. My heart exults. With my song I give thanks to Him. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in Your Word. And God is our shield too. The one who protects us, holds us, and guards us. And that's his first word to Abram. Abram, he, he tells Abram who he is for him. He is his shield. He goes on and answers Abram's doubt, not only in who he is for Abram, but also in what he says to Abram. He makes promises to Abram again and again and again, patiently with him, not angered by Abram's and our need for reassurance. And he does it in a really graphic way here. What does he do when he comes to Abram to repeat his promises to him? He says, Abram, let's do this. Come with me. He walks outside and has him look up into the night sky where there's no ambient light, and no street lights to distract him. And he looks up and he sees stars everywhere. And he says, Abram, that's what I'm talking about. Do you see them lit up in all their glory. That's how numerous your children will be. Abram, I'm promising you, I'm going to do that for you. See the intimacy of that, the personalness of God taking him by the hand and going outside and showing him again what he's going to do. You see, how does God meet Abram in his doubts? He makes promises. He says, Abram, I'm binding myself to you. I will do this for you. So he goes on and reiterates his promises to Abram that he's going to give him this land of Canaan. In verse 13, he he has this great phrase. He says, Abram, that you may know for certain, that your heart may rest, that you may know that I am going to meet these promises for you. And God makes promises to us as well. That He really does bring us His forgiveness and healing in Jesus that He really does have a heavenly home that is secure for us, that He really is going to see us through to the end of our days and beyond, that we have a God who holds us and promises that He will never let us go. Just as He speaks promises to Abram, He speaks them to us. But He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just speak them. He does something. Strange and mysterious and graphic for us. We ourselves say that actions speak louder than words. Well, God shows and answers his doubts, um, Abram's doubts, and what he does for us. And and we see this picture of this very strange um, ceremony that he takes Abram through. Um, and we, we see this verse 7 through the end of the chapter. What does he do? He, he speaks to Abram 
in a language that he would understand. We read this and think, what in the world is going on? And Abram hears God's instructions and he says, oh, good. Oh, good, why? Because he knows that God is making a promise to him. God gives him these directions. He says, Abram, I want you to take all of these animals and I want you to cut them in half and lay the halves facing each other on the ground because we are going to have a covenant ceremony. Abram knows that God is making a promise to him, a covenant with him, a contract with him, an agreement with him. And this was the way in Abram's culture that you said, I'm really serious about this and I'm not going to fail. Because when he does this, what he is modeling for Abram, the seriousness, the weight, the depth with which he takes our commitment to him. Because when someone in that culture made an oath and a covenant like this, and they cut the animals in half and laid them on the sides of the path and then walked through the halves, they were saying this, if I don't live up to my promises to you, then may I be like these animals here, torn apart, killed, rendered uh, into pieces. May I be destroyed if I don't keep my word for you. Abram knew what was happening. They were making a covenant. And uh, when he did this, he was saying what we say, but more so. We make covenants. We make contracts. When you're a kid, maybe you said this, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I'm looking out. None of you ever stuck a needle in your eye. But when God makes this covenant and when people in Abram's culture made this covenant, they, they made the real deal. It wasn't just words. It was very bloody and active as they did this thing and said, may this be a picture of what will happen if I don't live up to this. And we just need to stop and think a minute about what's in particular amazing about this. Not simply that God makes a covenant and does this with Abraham, though there's weight to that. We also need to look and, and notice who seals the covenant here? Because typically when there was an agreement between two parties, both parties would walk through the halves of the sacrifice. Or if in the case here, you've got a great king making a, a covenant and agreement with essentially a vassal, oftentimes it might be only the vassal who would walk through the pieces. But what happens here? God makes a promise to Abraham that doesn't have a second half to it. God says to him, Abram, here is what I'm going to do for you. And as Abram might have listened to hear what he had to do in response, God said nothing. He says, Abram, I'm not putting any stipulations on this for you. I'm not putting any conditions on this for you. I am doing this for you. And Abram, sit right there while I alone walk through the halves of this sacrifice. Hear what God's saying. He's saying, I am pledging myself to you, Abram, and I, the God of the universe, may I be torn apart if I don't keep my promise to you. My covenant of grace with you. My promise to love you though you do not deserve it. And regardless of what you do, I am going to bring my promises to bear in your life. God shows it here. And we look beyond here to show, to, to see what this is, um, maybe a, a deeper picture of where God here promises, I will be torn apart for you if that's what it takes. And later in the Bible, what do we see? That very thing happening as God is torn apart to keep a covenant with us. As Christ, God in the flesh, comes, not only takes on our life and not only comes and teaches and heals, but comes to a cross and dies, is torn apart so that we might be brought home to God. 
So that at the end of the day, it is not our merit and it's not our value that drives us home to God. It is God bringing us home and welcoming us and forgiving us because of what Christ has done. When he says here, Abram, I am going to walk through the pieces of this sacrifice and you sit there, it is what he brings to fruition on the cross. When he says, you cannot save yourself. And you cannot earn my love and you cannot earn my forgiveness, but I am willing to be torn apart that I might give it to you freely by grace. It is what God does for us, not what we can do for ourselves. Okay, that's what's being pictured here. As God wrestles with and deals with the reality of Abram's real doubts as somebody doubting from the inside of faith, and he comes and he answers Abram's doubts. I am your shield. I am making promises to you and I am sealing them with this kind of covenant for you. Now, what do we do with our doubts? How does this speak into where we go when we struggle? Another way of saying, you know, in the face of our doubts, how do we respond to God's grace in faith? How do we speak to our own doubts? Let me just mention Three, three ways to do that briefly that ties back to the passage. One, when you speak to your doubts, what do you do? You tell them the truth. Tell them the truth of what? My sin has been paid for by Christ. And there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Speaking to our doubts says, how do we know that we are forgiven? We look to the cross just as Abram after this incident Though he's going to be somebody who still has those moments of struggle with doubt, he can look back and say, how do I know God is true? Because he made this kind of covenant and promise with me. He didn't just speak nice, happy words to me. He put it in blood that he would do for me what he promised. And when we look to the cross, we see God doing that exact same thing. Not just happy thoughts have come and know me. Not just, you know, your sin doesn't really matter, but I have paid for it. The debt is done. You are free. What do we do with our doubts? We speak the truth. We take them right back to Jesus, His death and resurrection for us. Jack Miller, pastor, uh, famously said this, preach the gospel to yourself every day because every day you forget it. And we preach the gospel to each other every day because every day we forget it. Maybe in those moments of doubt, you feel like the kid who's learning how to swim. And our kids have been doing that this summer. When you're in the shallow end and they're, they're trying to learn their strokes and they're trying to figure out how to breathe at the same time. And you know those moments learning how to swim where you feel like you're suddenly drowning and you're flailing. And what do you do? You remember that you're in three feet of water and you stand up. And once again, your feet connect with solid ground. And that is what we do when we speak the truth to ourselves, when we connect again to the solid ground of Christ's death and resurrection for us. In the middle of flailing in our doubts, we do this. We stand up and remember what is true because that core reality for us, that forgiveness that comes in Jesus is the beginning point for us. Whatever else happens, Christ has sealed Himself to us. You are forgiven. God has you. Stand up. We tell them the truth, our doubts, and we take them to God. Christianity, in remembering the gospel, is not what I'm afraid it sometimes sounds like to some of us. It is not just another example of good cognitive therapy. Okay, Just tell yourself the truth, and sooner or later, you can convince yourself or trick yourself to believe it. We all know that that is not the case. right? You can take this truth and feel that it finds... Know where to grab hold in your life. 
the good news for us is that we don't simply speak the truth to ourselves, but we take them to God because we are not simply trying to convince ourselves of some fact that happened long, long ago and that we read in the pages of the book, though it did happen and though we do read it here. But we come, as we speak the truth to ourselves and each other, we come remembering this, that we follow a God who is alive and active now. See, God tells us that He puts His Spirit in the lives of all who follow Him, that His Holy Spirit is in us now. And so when we remember the gospel, when we speak it to ourselves, when we speak it to each other, our hope is not simply that we're going to intellectually grasp it well enough, though that's important, but that the Holy Spirit Himself would come and drive it home. What do you do with your doubts? You take them to God. God, I don't believe. Not today. Turn my heart around. It feels like dust and vapor to me today. Would you drive it home? Would you make it real? We have a real God to cry out to as we come before Him remembering the truth of what Christ has done for us. God is in it with us. He meets us in our struggle from close up, not from far away. The Holy Spirit lives in the lives of His people. God is in you. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness in your heart of the truth of Scripture. Listen and pray for it. And ask for humble ears to hear. Our doubts, we tell them the truth, we take them to God. And then finally, we humble them in community. That we do not live our lives as if we are solo doubters or solo Christians, but we bring them to the community of God's people around us. That might mean when you are struggling, you come and tell your uh, home group about it. It might mean maybe you're, you gather with a few other people in the church to pray regularly. You come and say, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with doubt. Speak the truth to me again. Show me where I'm being foolish. Expose it to me. Pray for me. You see, we are not solitary doubters and solitary strugglers. We humble our doubts by bringing them to those around us. As we remember the truth of the gospel, as it's told to us by those around us, as we remember the truth of the gospel, as we get outside of ourselves by serving others and loving others and remembering that at the end of the day, the weight of our doubts is not the most serious thing in this universe. God is at work. He is alive and he is doing good things in our community, in the world around us. And he calls us into it. And as we step into those things, as we take our doubts and humble them in community, we regain maybe perspective on our own lives and our own doubts. And we see that God's real because you can see him working around you and in the people around you and miraculously through your own attempts to love the people around you, lame as they are, and you see God bring good fruit out of them and you see the gospel is real. God is at work. And we begin to see the answer to our doubts as we see the power of God at work in us and around us. Let me just try to sum all this up this way. You struggle with doubt. I know you do. So do I. Maybe not today but maybe this week and in times ahead, what do we do with them? We come to our God and we remember that He is not scared of us. And He does not push His children away when they question, but He draws them close. May we look to Him as Abram did in all his faults, one yet whom God used to bring the hope of the gospel ultimately to the ends of the earth. This doubting man who was no match for a good and faithful God, and we are no match for a good and faithful and loving God. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you as uh, often doubters. Maybe some of us in this room st struggling with it very acutely right now. Would you speak to us in our doubts? Would you remind us of the goodness of your love that you have sealed to us, that you have guaranteed, that you have taken to the cross, that our sin, that our alienation from you might be dealt with forever? May that be the solid ground 
that we put our feet on when we are flailing? And would it really ground us and center us? Would it really give us the perspective that we need that we might follow you in trust and in faith? We come as weak people needing you, a great Savior. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.